I'm going to pray. Will you join me? Now, Father, the text of Scripture in front of us today is too big for me, uh, too big, I suspect, for any man. It contains great riches and wonderful mysteries, and we simply pray that you would give to me the ability to capture some of this richness and to all of us some deeper appreciation of who Christ is and what he's done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of meeting someone, uh, forming an opinion of them, and then later discovering that there's a lot more to that person than you first thought. Sometimes we find ourselves saying, don't we, that there's more to someone than meets the eye. And that's part of the joy of a developing relationship, isn't it? That you don't get to know a person truly in just one conversation. You certainly don't get to understand a person just by looking at them. Perhaps we should say that this is true of everyone, that there's more to them than meets the eye. But what about Jesus? Do you think he could be the exception to that rule? After all, he's someone entirely without guile or pretense. He's a man of perfect integrity. What you see is what you get. And what you see reveals so much about Jesus We've just finished this series in Matthew 8 and 9 and even if you just took those two chapters on their own and made a list of what you learn about Jesus when you watch and listen to him, you'd see so much of who he is and what he can do. Healing the sick, confronting evil, speaking with incredible authority, calming storms, offering forgiveness to sinners, confounding his enemies, raising the dead. He looks like God in the flesh. And if that's true, could there possibly be more to him than meets the eye? Well, in those verses Emma just read now from Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has a lot to tell us about Jesus. And some of the things Paul teaches us here are not things you could learn about Jesus just by looking at him. Because they concern things God's Son had a hand in before the world existed. They concern things Jesus does now that are invisible to the human eye and they speak of things that he will inherit in days to come. These verses in Colossians show us that even with Jesus, there's more than meets the eye. And that's a staggering thought, isn't it? But the verses in front of us tonight really do paint a mind-bending picture for us Just when you thought you had a grasp on who Jesus is and what he's done, along comes Colossians chapter 1. And I want to look at this section with you today under these two headings. First, I want to remind you of what Paul says about the cosmic significance of Jesus. And then I want to remind you of how he is at the same time personally significant for each one of us. But we start with verses 15 to 20 and the cosmic significance of Jesus. And I want to point out three things. The first concerns his role in God's revelation. And here I'm thinking particularly about that very first line of our passage, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, if someone asked you whether God can be seen, what would you say? 
Now, at one level, of course, the answer is no, God's invisible. And yet the Bible also teaches us that God has revealed himself in history through a man who was seen and heard and touched. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He himself says that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And that's because he's the Father's image, as Paul says here, his perfect reflection He is himself fully God, as Paul says so explicitly down in verse 19. Let me read you that again. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Such a thing has never been said about anyone else who's lived. And if it were said of someone else, it would be laughable. But this is true of Jesus. And it's in this way that he is God's revelation of himself to the world. The second thing I want to point out is the role the son plays in creation. Verse 15 calls him the firstborn over all creation. Paul doesn't mean the firstborn here in the sense of being the first one created. Jesus was never created in that sense. He's always existed. But He means firstborn in the way that all ancient cultures used that word to refer to the most favoured son. The father may have other children, but this son is his most exalted. And it's because he's the father's firstborn son that he's also the heir of everything that belongs to the father. This is what Paul means at the end of verse 16 when he says that all creation is for him. And this is why he's over all creation. He rules it. He's supreme above all creatures. But his supremacy over all created things is not just because God has made everything for him, it's also because God has made everything through him. And this is the key point in verse 16. And when Paul says everything, he means everything. You and I often use words like all and every to exaggerate something, you know, like Steve Smith is better than every other cricketer who's ever lived or all my friends think the same about this or every news outlet is misleading people on this one or you always leave the toilet seat up. But when Paul uses this kind of language here, he's he's not exaggerating at all. There's no hyperbole in this. He wants to stress this in verse 16. He says, The Son was the one through whom God created things in heaven and on earth, visible things and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him. Just think about that. And, verse 17, he pre-existed all these things, And all the things God has created are held together in him. Not only did he play a significant role in creating the universe, but he continues to play a role in sustaining it. The sun keeps shining because of Jesus. The earth keeps turning because of him. The trees keep growing in him. We keep breathing thanks to him. As that little ditty goes, he has the whole world in his hands. That's why he's supreme. 
And this is the point Paul's making in verse 18 as well, where he specifically talks about the church. The church is part of what he's created in the world, and Jesus, he says, is the church's head. And not as some kind of distant monarch who just has a notional role over the church. No, Jesus entered the world for the church and tasted death for her, for us. And he's passed through death into eternal life so that he's the beginning of our new future. In verse 18, he's the firstborn in a slightly different sense, the first to be born anew out of death into resurrection life, the one who paved the way for all of us to do the same. Because of all this, Jesus is supreme in the church as he's supreme in all creation. But the third thing we ought to notice here is the very unusual and striking thing that Paul says in verse 20. Because there he speaks of the son's role in a cosmic reconciliation. The same comprehensive language we noticed back in verse 16 is used again here. I'll pick it up from verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, when we think of Christ's reconciling work, we tend to think of God welcoming individual sinners, making them his friends rather than his enemies. And, of course, we do see Paul talk about exactly that in the very next paragraph. But what does he mean here in verse 20 when he talks about the blood of Christ reconciling all things to himself, things on earth as well as things in heaven? Well, in order to understand that, we first need to grasp that the heavens and the earth have, by nature, all created things, a disturbed relationship with the Creator. It's not just individual humans whose lives are in tension with the Son's Lordship. All creation is caught up in this resistance. And so what Paul is saying here is that the death of Christ ultimately has the effect of ensuring that every part of his creation will one day come again to acknowledge the lordship of Christ. In that sense, I think the peace that's restored to all things that he talks about here is perhaps less about the creation's willing submission to Christ and more about the way the creation's resistance is pacified by Christ's victory. I think what Paul's describing in this verse is the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah chapter 11, which looked forward to a day when wolves and lambs would live together peacefully, when children could play safely with snakes, when lions would eat straw rather than eating other animals. And I think this is also what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2 when he describes every knee in heaven and on earth bowing before Jesus and acknowledging him as Lord. This is the cosmic reconciliation that Christ's death accomplishes. And all this is to say that there is more to Jesus than meets the eye. In order to know Jesus well, we depend upon God's word to teach us about him. His word teaches us what we cannot see just by observing his spectacularly unique life. 
We need pastors like this one we've got in front of us tonight to show us the son's eternity, the son's supreme kingship overall, how much the future is actually about him. And and thank God we have texts like Colossians chapter 1 which helps us to grasp Jesus' part in God's cosmic revelation, in God's cosmic creation and in God's cosmic reconciliation. I hope your reaction to all of that is similar to mine because I read these verses and they cause my knees to bend. I read these verses and I feel more awe for Jesus. I read these verses and I realise how easy it is for me often to work with a picture of Jesus in my mind that's simpler and smaller than the reality. I'm humbled as I read these verses by the sense that Paul gives me of Christ's majesty, his greatness, his vast, vast importance. And my heart is led to worship him. My heart's led to the kind of worship that delights in what one knows and yet simultaneously grasps that there's much more still to know. And do you want to know the thing that strikes me most about these verses? It's how little they say about us. I'm caused to reflect on how often my gratitude to Jesus and my worship of him is a response to what he's done for me. But but these verses remind me of how much larger than me is Christ's purpose and significance. Now, of course, it's not wrong for me to call Jesus my Jesus, my saviour. And he does deserve my praise because he is. He's the one who rescued me, the one who welcomes me into God's kingdom. But... My Jesus, my saviour, doesn't say anywhere near enough about him, does it? These verses show me that he would be worthy of my worship now and forever, whether or not he'd ever lifted a finger to serve me. And it's with that in mind that we turn to the second paragraph. Because now I want us to think together not just about how the Christ of cosmic significance is presented to us here, but also how incredibly and wonderfully we see Christ for us personally. Again, three things. The first thing here is that Paul takes this point he's just made about the cosmic reconciliation that Christ accomplishes and he shows us how that incorporates people like us. And it's verses 21 and 22 that tell the story. Once, he says, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. The word that describes our relationship with God apart from Christ is alienation 
And not chiefly because God was against us, but rather because we all by nature make ourselves his enemies. Our minds are set against him and so our behaviour is evil. But by his shocking death on the cross, Jesus pays for sin. He pays for hostility in the mind and evilness in behaviour. He takes it upon himself and it dies with him. And instead, we are given his purity as we stand before God. Did you hear those words? Holy, without blemish, free from accusation. Adjectives that are a fitting description of the one who died, but which are actually used to describe forgiven sinners, like the Colossians, like us. Can you believe it? Those words are not easy to believe, are they? Because we know ourselves too well. When we're honest with ourselves, we know very clearly our own unholiness. And we're all too conscious of our blemishes. And we are well aware of what we could very legitimately be accused of. And as a result, we often see ourselves very differently to how God does. But if you've entrusted yourself to Jesus, these are the adjectives that God's own word uses to describe you. Holy. Without blemish. Free from accusation. Just let them sink in. And as you do, look as well at verse 23. Because there Paul reminds us that these things will be true of us, not only now, but on the final day when we meet Jesus, if, if we don't turn our backs on him. Now that's a very sobering if, isn't it? And it's given to us to make sure we don't take Christ's stunning grace for granted if you continue in your faith. That's the key idea here. And it's really a key idea right through the book of Colossians. It's the idea that captures our central responsibility as Christians. If Christ's gift to us is reconciliation, what he requires of us is continuation. Keep the faith. Hold firm. Don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. Now, you might be asking yourself, is is that really our central responsibility as Christians? Surely there's more to it. No, there's not. This is really the heart of all that Christians must do once they've turned to Christ. They must continue in their faith and never give up. Now, of course, as we continue in him, we'll bear fruit and we will mature. These are the work of God in us. Our part is to always be faithful to Christ. 
And if we all simply do that, all that God promises is ours, now and in the end. And if you've never thought about this word before as a summary of the Christian life, then I commend it to you today. Continuation. As the Christian life begins with faith, with acknowledging our need of Jesus, reaching out to him, so must we continue. Rejecting every temptation to turn away, resisting every spiritual danger, recognising every possible distraction. And why would we not? If we've come to the one who alone can give us life, why would we ever turn away from him? Now, as you may know, this term here at St Mark's, we're learning from Colossians together in our Sunday sermons, but also in our home groups and in youth group and in kids' church. And one of the great things about learning together across the whole church family is the way that we can talk with one another about what we're learning in those different groups. And at our family lunch table last Sunday, one of my daughters shared an illustration that she'd heard in kids' church that morning. And the kids' church leader had said that if water and sunlight are what cause a tree to grow in the first place, why would you then look for the tree to continue to grow by nurturing it in some other way? Why would you stop giving it sunlight and water? And in the same way, if the gospel of Christ bears fruit in our lives to begin with, why would we then look to grow as Christians in some other way? If Christ is the source of life and health and fruitfulness in the beginning, then he will always be. And we'd be mad to look anywhere else. And this is what Paul's saying in Colossians. If you've come to Christ, and if now instead of being God's enemy, you find yourself spotless and holy before him with no accusation standing against you, if the gospel has borne that kind of fruit in your life already, then just make sure you stick with the Jesus who's done that. Don't budge. Don't move from that hope which the gospel holds out to you. Continuation. And thirdly and finally, proclamation. Because at the very end of our passage, Paul wants to say one final thing about this gospel which holds out the hope. He says, verse 23, that it's the gospel which he served and which in his day had been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Now, it's not entirely clear in what sense Paul meant that, but I suspect what he's trying to do is underline the point that he made back in chapter 1, verse 6, that this gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. And his key point, I think, is that this gospel is for the whole world. It's, it's the gospel, the, the divine message that he says, is for every creature under heaven. And you can't get a stronger statement than that of how personal, the work of Christ is. He's not only the cosmic Christ, but he's the Christ for every person who has ever lived and who ever will live. So, if you're listening tonight and you're not yet a Christian, you haven't yet entrusted yourself to Christ, then Paul is saying that this message is for you. You're one of God's creatures. And this gospel is a personal word from God to you. It tells you with 
compassionate honesty that the state of your relationship with God right now is one of alienation. God wants you to know that you're not right with him. And if you haven't come to Christ, you need to be reconciled. But God also wants you to know that he sent his son to the earth to rescue and purify you. And that hope of standing before God without accusation is yours if you'll simply trust Jesus and continue to trust him till your life's end. God invites you to come to him and receive his welcome. And if you're listening today and you're already a Christian, then Paul is saying that this message is just as much for you. You too are one of God's creatures and you need this hope now as much as you ever did, as do I. Which is why our number one aim in life must be to continue in our faith. But this this final sentence also reminds me, reminds you that If the gospel is for every creature under heaven, then we have an invitation to share it. We have an opportunity to play our part in making sure that every creature under heaven hears it. This is the word spoken to us today. As Christ reveals God to the whole world and as he was at work in the cosmic Creation, And as Christ sustains and rules the creation, even today, including our church, and as Christ has fulfilled his role in God's cosmic reconciliation, so too our fidelity to him will see us play a part in God's cosmic story. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Amen.